You win. Perfect. You lose. <laughs> this is the XC's Winners and Losers podcast. It's the inaugural edition of the Winners and Losers podcast. My name is Michael Doyle, and I am joined this late Friday evening by my partner in crime in this endeavor, in this podcast, John LaFranco of Montreal, who is a coach with AVM, Athleticism of de Ville-Marie. Sorry, I butchered that, John. And uh, also, what do you do with Athletics Canada? What's your title? What's your fancy title? Manager of Coaching Education, but currently on parental leave. (laughs) So if we uh, talk shit about Athletics Canada, athletes and events, you're not going to get in trouble because you technically aren't working for them right now. You're working for the Canadian government, right? <laughs> yes, I'm working for, for Justin. He's cutting me checks. You're like, oh yeah. man, why did I agree to do this? Um, all right, let's dig in. Okay, let me explain first of all the, 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 the format here. A preamble is that this is not winners and people who are losers. This is people who have won something or gained something by an experience and people who have perhaps lost something uh, by an experience or by taking a risk. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that we're talking about them negatively. In some cases, when people are losers or have lost in a situation that we're talking about, we're actually kind of in a weird way celebrating them because they took the risk and good for them. Got to do that. This is sport. Uh, There are winners and losers in sport. There are people who cross the finish line first and benefit more than others in certain situations. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, this episode is going to focus on the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. Before it drifts off into the distance on us, John, we're going to each do three winners and losers uh, and discuss why we thought they won or lost uh, based on the Toronto Waterfront Marathon weekend. And we're going to do this, I think we agreed on every major event, right? So like, I guess New York is next, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah sure. so we'll do New York next, and then there's the Canadian Cross Country Championships. We'll tackle that too, and then who knows what next after that? Yeah, we're looking to like make a a rousing conversation, uh, add to the debate a little bit. So, yeah, let's start with the winners. Let's start with um, happy, feel good stories. What's who's your first winner from the, <laughs> from the Waterfront Marathon? All right, so first first co winners, uh, Alan and Charlotte Brooke, who are the the, the people who basically run the thing. So Alan Brooks is, is the race director and he's kind of the front man. He's the one uh, who's up on the stage and, you know, uh, at the awards telling, you know, telling the stories and stuff and, and also doing a lot of the, just managing the whole operation. Um, but I think people maybe don't know his daughter, Charlotte, who actually is the one who's in the, the hotel conference room in the operations center like actually making sure that the thing happens. Um, so she's the one in charge of operations, like all the people go in there and everything and all the different volunteers and also coordinating with hugely important with the city of Toronto, with the police, with the fire department, with the emergency services, everything like that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's important to underline those two because they, again, put on a great event and, and being in Montreal, it really, um, it was highlighted for me because the Montreal Marathon, um, if we're talking about losers, 
uh, did not Uh-oh. go well. There, there <laughs> was a there was a fifty minute delay at the start. The marathon winners were coming in it, into the back of half marathon walkers, and so people I coach were like weaving through people and stuff for the last yeah, like five ten uh, k. It was just it was just a mess. And and I, I make this comparison because I had a conversation with the now deposed race director of Montreal who said, you know, I want Montreal to be, you know, like a great international man. And, (laughs) and it's not, and I'll tell you why Charlotte and Alan do such a, well, one reason why they do such a good job. So I was walking to the start, walking down Avenue road and who did I see just kind of like organizing a troop of like seven volunteers Kirsten Fleming, who's the race director for Calgary Marathon Weekend. So Charlotte brought in the race director of like one of the top three probably marathons in Canada. And she's running volunteers. Um, I didn't see him, but John Halverson is, John Halverson, he's not doing it anymore, but he was the the head of Run Ottawa and the race director for Ottawa Marathon, which is, you know, basically the other, you know, gold label top, top event in Canada. And he's in the operations room with Charlotte. And, you know, who knows who else they, they had in oh, there. Oh, I'll tell you who um, else. They got, but, they have big yeah. and small. Like Mike Nishi, yeah. I believe his name is, from the Chicago right. Marathon. He's there. Uh, and then, like, yeah. people who run very well-organized kind of smaller marathons in Canada. Michelle Kempton yeah. out at the Maritime Race Weekend in Nova Scotia. She comes up for the weekend to mm-hmm. help out, do, like, front-facing stuff because she's super nice and easy mm-hmm. to chat. She's a Maritimer. Everyone loves Maritimers. So they bring together this crazy team of people, right? Um, and I guess that's mm-hmm. one of the little things. And I think you have to in Toronto. It's It's so big. You know, like they're shutting down Lakeshore Boulevard. Like if you don't, if everything doesn't go off perfectly, then it cannot happen. You know, like that, that's, you have to do everything right and keep everybody happy or, you know, the city will just be like, nope. This city is not in (laughs) love with distance running. The city does not give up any more permits. It's kind of difficult to deal with. It's really a tough sell. So absolutely. Yeah. So my first winner is uh, Nike is my first winner. Um, a few years ago, I was chatting with someone at Nike. This was before breaking two. This is before, of course, the, the doper shoes, the four percents. And they said that they had spent the morning at the Toronto waterfront marathon, someone at Nike Canada, and they counted the first couple hundred people that crossed the finish line at the race. And I don't remember the exact number, but it was not a very high number. Like we were talking, you can count on maybe two hands how many people were wearing Nike shoes in the first couple hundred people running. Uh, and uh, that's outside, of course, they're sponsored East African and you know top North American runners. So uh, they were in a very different place just a few years ago. I think if you were to sit at the starting or the finish line of the Toronto Waterfront Marathon and count off how many of the top 200 runners, all under three hours in the marathon, they had 246 people run under three hours this year, which is pretty good. I would say that the, would you say maybe the majority of them were wearing 4% or next percent shoes? I would say probably the majority, which is a scary thing to say, considering it's a $300 plus shoe. It's a very specific shoe. So they're the big winners in this. They're like a huge winner. Not only that, something that we've been talking about a lot in our circles in the last week is lots of athletes 
have made bold steps to get their feet into those shoes. Some very good athletes, some athletes who won Canadian championships and who were with other brands before have found themselves wearing the Nike shoe. My intel is that they're not getting any money from Nike. And in some cases, I think they paid for the shoes themselves. So all signs point to Nike being huge winners in this for now, at least. I'm sure the other brands are going to play catch up, but for now they're way ahead in front in terms of competitive running. Definitely. And I think, you know, there are a lot of um, of criticisms around this shoe and, and the breaking two thing and all that. But I, I don't, I don't really buy them. Like one of the things, um, you know, I saw uh, on Twitter, which I'm weird because I'm not really on Twitter a lot, but um, you know, someone was kind of passive aggressively saying, well, you know, you guys just watched like a two hour commercial for Nike. It's like, well, yes. And you know, just because we can be aware of that doesn't mean that, you know, Kipchoge isn't amazing, but like good for Nike, right? I mean, they've got everybody wanting to be in this shoe. I, I'm a little, you know, I'm not really racing much, so I'm a little late to the game, but I tried to pair on the other day and like, yeah, I would, I would race if I were any good. <laughs> I would wear those, <laughs> you know, um, for sure. They, they feel great and, and they definitely feel like they could, you know, make you feel fast. And then, the other thing is the whole uh, like rule debate, like, oh, like, should these be, you know, banned or whatever? And I saw Alex Hutchinson was kind of saying, like, actually, all they really did was take a bunch of existing innovation in one shoe. So it's not like it's that, you know, far removed in terms of sports equipment. And it's also, it's sports equipment, like, we don't use, you know, bamboo pole vault poles or whatever anymore. I saw that online somewhere. I was like, that's funny. Which and is it's disappointing. True. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it might be more entertaining if we did, but like, and like hockey goalies, you know, take your mask off. Just take it off, you know? That would make like, for one I, hell of a I, game. It'd be one amazing <laughs> game. Terrifying right. game. Like, I, yeah, I, I just, I think, you know, people are all kind of pearl clutchy over this and it's like, it's just sports and, and like, you know, sports advance, like, yeah, you can probably say that a bunch of the the jumps in performance recently have been partly due to the shoes, but I'm I'm on Kipchoge's side when, you know, he talks about his like his own self-belief and things like that, and I think that other people, you know, can have that too and and you get it also from like if you see someone else and we can we'll kind of get into this maybe when we talk about some of the other the other people in, who ran this race you see someone do something and then you're like, yeah, okay. Like I can do that. And maybe they did it with the shoes and oh, you yeah. get the shoes too. And that's part of it. But it's, yeah. So I, I agree. Like, I think, you know, Nike has done a really great job with, you know, with selling their products, but also it it's also seems to be a really good product and it's working. So other brands need to, figure out you know how they're going to innovate and they are like there's other versions that exist right that are you know each company is going to come up with their own and and probably going to level the playing field to an extent but you know it's nike's first so who is your we'll stick with the winners we'll go three we'll go through the winners then we'll go through the losers who's your next winner um okay my next winner uh this is lame but like the winners uh so Trevor, yeah. Trevor Hoffbauer, Dana Fedorowski. So, I mean, obviously they're winners in the very literal sense, but I think both of them 
were coming in under the radar and maybe for a bit different reasons. Like I think hot bar, I, you know, I don't know. I, I not, it's not like, there's not really like as much of a kind of hot stove or whatever around these things as, as we'd like there to be probably. But I, I think no one was really thinking about him. Um, maybe hoping to see him take another step forward, but you know, I, I don't, no one picked him, you know, to, to run standard or to, to no, break, uh, no. 210. They'd be lying um, if they said they did. They, they, yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. And, but I mean, he, he, he did, he did it. And, and the same with Dana, who it's a bit different with her because I think she has kind of put herself out there a few times. Yes. like going for it yes. and in the marathon like either you get it or you don't and if you don't you really don't and she's blown up a bunch of times yeah. but she's kind of gone for it and and so this time it caught and and so you know good good for her she yeah she timed it right it this is if you're gonna hit on it this is the one and so they're both they're both going to the olympics which is which is fantastic just totally um, mind-boggling yeah. and kind of crazy and amazing and like makes you like believe in fairy tales and cheesy feel good sports movies. And <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like, that's what the, the Toronto waterfront marathon this year in many ways was like a two and change hour feel good sports movie. <laughs> it really yeah, was in yeah. every respect. And I think it's one of the reasons why we wanted to jump on and start with this race, not only because we're mm -hmm. pretty heavily involved with it and it's, you know, the grand poobah of, uh, fall racing here in Canada. Yeah. But I think also yeah. it just, it, it was an elevated experience. It was a yeah. great experience regard. If you're a fan of the sport, it was a great experience, I think. Um, so mm -hmm. my second winner is the course itself. I think over the years, the course is seen as, I mean, I think it's billed as flat, fast and festive. I believe that was like the tagline or is still the tagline. <laughs> it is mostly flat. It is, it, the first half is smoking fast, like almost too fast. The second half has traditionally been slower and a bit of a grind. There's big unpopulated stretches, which can be tough in terms of like focus and motivation. Um, there's a North South stretch, which is uh, slightly uphill and then slightly downhill, but it kind of takes the wind out of the, the pace of the event. And it's one of these races that it's always set up to run 205-ish. You know, the pacers go out, they're always going after course record, and they're always going after all-comers Canadian record in the first half. Yeah. And quite often, quietly, as you're talking about it, because I've done the, the broadcast for a number of years, and as you're talking about it live, talking to the pictures, you're kind of, you're talking hopefully about the comers record going down but you're kind of thinking in the back of your head this is all going to go out the window in the second half and it's going to be yeah. an interesting race but it's going to kind of lose its momentum in the second half and the weather was great this year although i think it could get it could be even better in the future the field was great on the men's and the women's like right at the top 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 elite side and also the canadian trial side on either side the athletes came in super fit it was very competitive and it was exciting and it delivered like all, all four major elite races. If you want to kind of break them down into that were very exciting and, uh, delivered kind of a, a quality races. So I think the course itself got kind of knocked up, uh, a notch. It sort of entered into this higher strata. I think you're going to see now, uh, athletes from all around the world are going to identify that the Toronto course 
is quick enough for the tra- for you to travel to. And mm. who knows, you might get somebody who wants to try to run 204 or 203 on that course and succeed at it. So I think it was mm. a little bit of, um, yeah, I think it, I think there's a, um, a sea change in the perception of that course and it's been unlocked a little bit. So I'm excited to see what happens next year with that. Who is your last big winner of the waterfront marathon this year? So I, I, I picked Rory Linkletter, even though, um, like before the race I had, I had picked him as maybe running the standard and having a really fast debut and everything. And you know, he didn't make the standard, but I just think he's a really good guy. We, uh, we've been on some national teams together and, he, uh, in Denmark after world cross country, like right after the race, almost like in the bus, kind of on the way back or to the airport, he identified this race as the, I'm running Toronto waterfront. I'm going to debut in the marathon. I think the marathon's my best event and, and I really respect the distance. And he talked about his coach you know, at Istone who knows the distance pretty well and, and they're working on it and stuff. And so I, I just kind of thought he was really going to, I thought he had a chance to debut really strongly and the marathon's the marathon. So he ran 216.42, which is actually their debut than than Reed Coolset, who you might count as one of the top three Canadian marathoners of all time, even if maybe not by time necessarily, but um, by consistency just in terms of and, yeah, in terms of his career. And I think you know, just talking about Reed, like not only that, but just kind of being at the the spearhead of of the kind of revival that we've. So I think Rory did really well, and despite the fact that he didn't, you know, I, I honestly like that, those are my expectations for the standard. I I don't know necessarily that that's what he was planning to do, so I I don't know that he probably isn't even disappointed. I'm not disappointed in him. I, so well, he, sure he'll be happy. happy that, but, he'll be happy to hear that from you. But no, yeah. I agree with you, and I think I was pretty uh, all in with the the Rory experience as well. I chatted with them before the race for quite some time and he's like a real student of the sport talking about he reads shit like jack daniel's running formula and which is always like the sign of a true running nerd and uh, like but yeah he's a student of the sport <laughs> he he's all in about it um my colleague alex here wrote a pretty neat piece about how he um joined a, a Mormon university. He, re, he ran and, and studied at a Mormon university, BYU, even though he's not religious, which just purely mm. for like the, it's almost romantic, the monk-like ascetic sort of, um, yeah. like you're fully embedded as a runner, right? No distractions. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I kind of was, I was, I thought there was an outside shot that he would also run the standard as well in his first kick at the can uh the one perhaps mistake he made which maybe was a great learning experience for him i don't know i'd love to talk to him about it but it, he he was sort of looming way back in the background from the uh front group of uh, the top canadian men and i think he was floating in no man's land by himself for yeah a big chunk of yeah that race. I, and I saw that too and i i thought i wasn't sure you know if he was just kind of you know following his his watch and just thinking, okay, I'm running my own race. Um, or if, if he had, cause I think I saw him the earliest I saw him was like six K and he was already kind of there. So I don't know if he started with the two ten group and then was like, no, no. Or, or if he had been with the, the group for the back and then was like, no, I got to go faster. But like, I agree. Yeah. He was kind of alone and, um, it's not always the best thing. And I, and I, I'm, 
I'm so excited to watch what happens with this guy in 2020 because what marathon he runs next is going to be really interesting. How he runs it is going to be fascinating, you know, to see where he's, what he's learned from the Toronto experience uh, and how he'll train. Maybe he'll train differently. Maybe he'll train the same, but apply some different strategies. Uh, Yeah. I'm I'm excited. I can't wait to see him race again. Uh, My last big winner from Toronto marathon weekend was big non major marathon. So not your Chicago, not your New York, not your Tokyo, London, Berlin races like Toronto, which is a gold label race. So it's got this very high, uh, standing in the marathon running world. It's got the stamp of approval as a serious, you know, adult race, uh, races like Amsterdam, things like that, races like that, which also happened on the same day. Uh, it just, I think that races like this continuing to deliver deep fields, interesting storylines, interesting outcomes, excitement, great racing. Uh, it just, it's good for the sport. It's good for these events. Uh, because I think there's, I think that the marathon majors sometimes are kind of like these vortices. Is that the plural of vortex? Uh, these vortices, I think that is, I'm going to go with it of, um, of content in the, in the, in the distance running world where we're just going from, you know, in the fall, we're going from Berlin, Chicago, New York, and everything else in between is kind of this second rate experience. And I I think Toronto was at least in Canada, a very big deal. And Mm -hmm. the vibe I got on let's run, for example, was that know there was a lot of coverage for it there was a lot of conversation about it um and uh the there was interest in the canadian outcomes because the races were really good and the performances not only were the performances excellent the storylines were interesting right so we're always looking for strong storylines in this sport it's a sport that's really struggles to sell itself a lot of a lot of the time so i think that this weekend was a huge weekend for you're not Chicago, not Berlin, not New York in the fall. So that's my last. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a bit of a reason behind that in terms of at least like the quality of the field. So the gold label thing, it used to be that you, uh, as a gold label race, you had to invite athletes from X number of countries and you had to invite athletes who were, you know, who had at least run a certain time in the last year. Um, but they they changed that and they actually tightened it up. So you don't need to go to different countries and you've got a list of, well, I'm not sure how many, like 30 or 40, maybe more than that, but not a lot of, of athletes to choose from to be there. So the IAAF actually kind of gave those non-majors, you know, the gold labels, a boost by by forcing them to, to have better fields. So, and, and, you know, you, you have your money to spend and, and so now you're, you don't need to spread it out on, you know, getting kind of like, you know, a token person from a, a fifth country, you can bring in another two six person or whatever. It was very clear to me that they were able to build a very quality race and it became highly entertaining. It was an entertaining, mm-hmm. it was an entertaining thing to watch for a few hours on a Sunday morning which marathon running in particular struggles to deliver on that. Sometimes it's a mixed bag. 
So yep. who who is your um oh boy, here we go. Here we go. You're gonna get people yeah. upset. Who's your first So loser? all right. So I, I think I may I may have a, a man crush on him more even than on Rory, but I, I gotta go with Cam Levins as the as the first loser. And he actually wasn't the first loser, he finished third, so he's the second loser, but um Gosh. yeah, like I just think the expectations are high, right? And you got to deliver. And if Canadian distance running is going to play with the big boys, then we have to, and girls, we have to perform with the, the big boys and girls, which is, you know, performing on demand. And marathons are hard. It, you know, um, you're, you're better off betting against people in the marathon than betting for them because more likely than not, there's just so many different things that, that can contribute to a poor performance and you just need so many things to go right to have a good one. And I kind of wonder with Cam, like I know I don't, you probably know more than me because I think you were talking to him before, but like, you know, I, there was, he was maybe a little hurt. Like I know he didn't finish Philly and stuff and good for him for getting in and going for it. But yeah, I don't know. You, you kind of, you have to show up on the day and, and, and do the thing. So unfortunately Cam didn't, he still got another chance. And like, a guy of that caliber is I, I'm still pretty confident he's going to be in Tokyo as long as he stays healthy. Cause I think for him running the standard should be not a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's what his plan was coming into this race. And I, I, I sense, I don't know, but I sense that things were not a hundred percent or something yeah. leading into this wasn't like, maybe part of the build wasn't a hundred percent. Anyway, there wasn't a hundred percent confidence. That was pretty clear. And yeah. I think the idea was initially, uh, and I said this in the broadcast, the idea was initially, I, I spent quite a bit of time with him over the summertime, well, not over the summertime, but we spent a weekend. We saw a lot of each other one weekend, the weekend that he was in here, he was here for the, um, the Lululemon 10 K. And, mm. you know, he was talking not arrogantly, but in a really focused clear-eyed manner about okay where i want to go from this 209 is i want to go to top tier world class i want to get closer Mm -hmm. to the best times and he really believes that he can get there and his track performances have pointed in that direction so i don't think he's wrong to think that so i think the initial plan and perhaps pressure going into this fall's race was to really push that Canadian record down and challenge for the win in Toronto, which would have been so crazy. Uh, and hopefully it will happen in 2020 or 2021. Then the expectations got pulled back and it was, okay, we're just going to go for standard. And obviously it didn't pan out for him. He still needs, he needs to do something in the spring. That's He needs to do something in the marathon in the spring, which is a pressure that yeah. I think some of these athletes are now going to feel, which should be very interesting to watch. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, my, so my, my first biggest loser from the Toronto waterfront uh, experience was, how shall I say this nicely, and this ties into my winner of Nike, is brands that were not Nike that had athletes in the field that used to rep their brand and do not rep their brand anymore and are wearing Nike shoes instead and getting out their own credit card to buy them in some cases too. That stings. And that's a big, big change in the landscape in terms of this industry. 
uh, particularly in a small country like Canada. So yeah, I think that was probably felt pretty hard at the finish line by some brands. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's almost like the, the script has been flipped where usually what you have is a bunch of, um, say sub elite national, almost international class athletes, like kind of going to the brands and saying, Hey, well, you know, will you help me out? Will you do this? And getting signed by one of those is viewed as, as a big deal. And I've always looked at that and thought, but is it really like, what are you actually getting as an athlete from a, a brand like that? If you're not, if you're not actually employed, like if you're not, you know, on an international contract, right? right. If you're with Nike Canada versus Nike International. Like I don't, I don't actually know the details of what Nike Canada offers, but th- th- there's a difference, right? Like each oh, I can count, each brand I, has. I can tell yeah, you how many athletes. Their, <laughs> I can tell you how many yeah, athletes that so, Nike Canada gives cash money to, and I my guess is zero. In the U.S., but we know Nike International athletes. gives people a lot of money, but not yeah. Canadians anymore. There are a few. There are a um, few Canadians, and that's it. Not many. Well, Mar- not marathoners. Though. Less, less Canadian, less Canadian um, distance runners, or even track and field, like even track runners, than you would even think. Yeah. So my point is that it kind of was like it used to be that the athletes were kind of the ones, and and now it's flipped in the sense that the athletes are like, well, if I have to wear your stuff, then I can't wear this shoe that is going to make me two to three minutes faster. So. Yeah, I guess it's yeah. not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and you know, it kind of goes back to your Nike point. Like they're they're uh, hashtag winning. <laughs> Damn right. So who's yeah. your uh, who's the second loser for you? So another one that like I mean I just maybe I'm just using this as an excuse to talk about people I like, but um, Emily Setlack. So I think it almost could have gone either way in terms of a oh, winner yeah. or a loser because totally. she had a great performance. She PD'd by like six minutes or something. And I could see it coming. Like I, you know, I kind of follow her on Strava. I won't out her Strava name because it's not, she doesn't go by her own name and I think it's a private account. But, um, and I know Mel Myron, who I coach, went to Kingston to work out with her and, and Lindsay Tessier at least once. So kind of knew what kind of stuff she was doing. So I could anticipate that this was going to be good, but she missed the Olympic standard by 18 seconds, which is hard. Like, you know, to have, to have, it it takes away from the, the, what a great run it was. And and if you take out that Olympic standard thing and you just have that in a vacuum, like she's elated, but she must've just been like, ah, so close. Um, But the, the thing though, and I, I said this to you before the whole Olympic qualifying thing, um, people are all like, confused about it and stuff it's it's not really that complicated and so maybe just to kind of explain like if you run the time so for women it's 229 30 and for men it's what 211 30 or 211 00 211 30 i think yeah yeah or you can do like Lindsay testy did and finish top 10 at world championships (laughs) or at a world yeah uh or you can finish top five at a gold label event so if a Canadian had finished in the top five in Toronto overall, then that person would have made Olympic standard regardless of how quickly they ran. And then the other way is this IAAF rankings thing. 
and it's like not a good system <laughs> the rankings like i don't know the whole idea was like this is going to make it exciting for and interesting for fans to follow the sport and it's just obtuse like oh it's, it's brutal got, man you've got it's what it's brutal it's totally brutal yeah it's convoluted Uh, it's uninteresting yeah Yeah. so i mean at least you can get a uh a straightforward list of how people rank so the good news for emily is that she does rank in so on june 4th the final day of selection uh athletics canada will look at the iwf list and anyone who is in the top 80 is eligible to be selected. So even if you haven't run the time. So right now, there are actually eight Canadian women who would rank in the top 80 three per country. So let me just explain that because like, I was trying to understand this, getting it. But like, basically, you do a ranking of the top 80 three per country and figure out what the, the IWF points is for that 80th spot. And then you just see how many Canadians have more than that. Because Canada can't pick more than three. So it doesn't matter if there are like right. six or eight Canadians in that. They're all eligible to be selected. But as soon as three of them are selected, the other way. Right? Right. So uh, yeah, see, it's already it's complicated and it's not that interesting. But this is what we live with. So right now, there are eight women from Canada who are on June 4th if things remain as they are, could be eligible to be selected. Um, which, is, which is exciting, so, which is really neat. Yeah, like all, all is not lost for Emily Fetlack and others if they don't make the standard. So there's that. So that's good. To my memory, she's I think that what? leads well into your, your, other, uh, your other losers. Yes. But just a, a finishing thought. If you were to say to me, there will be more than one woman who will run under 230 in Toronto this year. And Melinda Elmore is also a scratch. I would. Right. And, and Rachel sure. is not showing up. I would have yeah. said, sure. eh, I'm not really yeah. Sure and, and, right. And if you said Canada is going to send three, uh, women to the Olympics and the marathon, and it's probably going to leave behind at least one person who's run under 230. Yeah. Mine, that's pretty good. That's, I mean, it's, it's not, good you know, not heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's where we wanted to be. It's where I think yeah. fans of the distance running in Canada wanted to see this get to and we're here. So, yeah. My second loser is actually a a collection. It's sort of the same story. It's sort of similar story where it's I got I just wrote to you uh Cam Levins Melinda Elmore, Kinsey Middleton, just slash, slash, slash. Yeah. Kind of the, just because they're all kind of in the same boat now, which is they've all got to go out and find spring races and they got to nail it. And that's a lot yeah. of pressure. And as you were saying before, marathoning is hard and there are, mm-hmm. there's a lot of volatility. You could peak for Rotterdam, fly to the Netherlands. That's your race all in tapered the whole bit you show up and it's a torrential downpour the entire time with a howling headwind and you're screwed and then you're running out of time after that then you're starting to do desperate things right so i think we're probably going to see an abnormal number of people in a race like ottawa which is going to turn into like a like the 
in track and field, you got all these last chance races, right? Uh, last chance yeah. track races yeah. that people parachute into on a Friday night before the 12 a.m. cutoff for qualifying for the right. Olympics or whatever. And yeah. this is going to be the the marathon equivalent will be Ottawa. And mm. you may see if if things weather-wise and performance-wise don't go everyone's way, you might see a crazy number of Canadian athletes on the start line in Ottawa doing nutty things like running a marathon only a month after having a really tough go at a marathon or something along those lines. So I right. think those three I mean, are in a I tough think spot. That, that I would not recommend that strategy. So <laughs> I wouldn't um, either. I if, mean, two no, marathons in a season then try to run the Olympics. This, this, no, but this this is what I mean. I don't think they need to. So on the guy side, um, right now the two selectable people are Hoffauer and Levin. So on the guy side, if you do top eighty and then fit whatever Canadians are in there, it's it's Levin's and Hoffauer. Um Woodfine is a couple points off. So Woodfine is a oh, guy yeah, you said you told me that he was like right like right he's on the five points five I don't know. There's also this weird like degradation of performance thing. So if your time that if your race that you're using for points is eighteen months old then you start to lose points for it. But like, I don't know. I don't know how you can calculate that. Like I leave that to, to Rich Lee, who I'm sure knows exactly how to do it. Rich Lee is Rachel Cliff's coach. Um, that he would know, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, my point is just that for the guys, maybe yeah, you're going to have to run a time. But on the women's side, that group, you could hold, you know, you could just, what's the, poker term stay or whatever like you just say okay i'm selectable i'm gonna just wait i believe that's a black black term yeah Yeah. sure i I don't know (laughs) i don't play cards the the risk there is like so and again like so i yes we mentioned i work for select canada i'm not on the selection committee i don't interact with the selection committee as part of the selection committee like it, it's not like there's an office and we all sit around together oh is the, se- works, the so. selection committee they're they're the ones that are like the um like those like the senate hearing committees in the in capitol hill in the u.s they're in like a basement it's behind closed doors they wear cloaks <laughs> no no they're all they're all in their own houses on a conference call like it's not central anyways but so we went through mel and i went through the selection for doha and it was it was frustrating because so they picked Lindsay good I, and yes. I, I don't quibble with the decision in the end but they picked Lindsay and then they said well we're not going to pick the other two for another like two months or whatever and my thing was like but we know who it's going to be like we know Rachel Cliff doesn't want to go we know Kinsey and Leslie Sexton don't want to go we know Melindy doesn't want to go like can we not just do this and. In the end, they picked who I knew they were going to pick, not because I knew what they were thinking, but just because that was the only options left. I, you know, we knew Mel was going to get to go, but we didn't get the, the official like yes until two days before she had to leave for San Moritz because of the the kind of delay. But my point on this is that in the end, they just they chose people in order of time. Yeah, that's what they did. So, so despite all the in the criteria, there's all the subjective like there's this and this and this. They chose people in order of time. They gave Sasha Golish the chance to run, even though she was a little bit hurt. If you really did a subjective analysis of who's where, 
and you looked at Setlack's training and you looked at Golish's training or lack thereof, it would not have been a hard decision to say Emily is going to be the best bet. But I think it's a defendable decision to do what they did because it's more objective and it's more fair to just say, okay, well, we're just going to go down the line this time. So that makes me wonder if that's kind of how it'll go anyway with the selection, which means that if you have a good, like a decent time, like if you run, I don't know, two thirty zero zero, and you're in that ranking thing and you're faster than everybody else, I just wait because based on what I saw at the last selection, that's what they'll do. It's going to be frustrating if, if they don't, if they only pick one to start, because we already know Dana and Hoffbauer are going. So are they going to wait till June 4th to select the other ones? Or like, you know, Rachel Cliff seems obvious to me as unless someone runs faster than that. But it's a really interesting scenario now. Who's going to do what? And I, I think my strategy would be to not get desperate at the end. I have to thank Athletics Canada because I'm as you're talking, I'm starting to realize just how fucking interesting this is going to get and how they have created this hornet's nest of debate, controversy, no, well, chaos. But Athletics Canada hasn't done it. It's, it's the IAAF. Because, okay, well, I mean, both of them. Athletics t- Canada could just say, well, you have to run this time and that's all. But no, no, then but, people would complain that, oh, but I could have been selected by the like as in the past. Right. Why is Athletics Canada making harder standards? The standards are exactly what the IWF standards are, which is what people complained about and wanted all along. It's just that now the IWF has created, as you put it, a hornet's nest. So now we and deal I, with it. And I love it. I'm not I'm not being sarcastic here. I no. actually love it. And I think it is in a twisted way really good for the sport because it makes it interesting. And Athletics Canada are making it more interesting and more complicated because they're, they've created this vagary clause where this committee has the final say and the committee can make that decision based on subjective criteria. Well, because it doesn't say what is worth more. It doesn't say is getting know, the time standard great. worth more or is, and that's, so that is subjective and you have to kind of figure that out. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that is causing this is not the national sport organization or the international sport organization. It's the athletes who are running fast. Who are really good. There are more are athletes running fast. Exactly. And that's it, awesome. Back in the day, it was just like Lanny and Krista and are they going to get it or not? Yep. Okay. That's fun. Sort of. <laughs> but yeah, not really. Sort of like a but foregone there's conclusion like to eight, a certain degree. Eight, eight selectable women in the end, possibly. Or maybe more because I, I don't, maybe there's other people that are just outside that I didn't, I didn't look too close, but. I wonder so if, yeah, yeah exciting. I wonder if this ex- inspires somebody that we're not even thinking about, maybe somebody super young to just go after a spring marathon and put themselves into the mix. Sure. Like, like we were not thinking of Hoffbauer or Dana Kuretsky. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, who is your last big loser, John? Uh, okay. So <laughs> I had this down as me. There's a story behind that, but not really me. The point is to talk about GPS watches and why they are not helping. So I coach <laughs> a guy, Fafajari. Um, he had a goal of running in the race of, of running under 221. Uh, he ran 221.20, so he didn't get his, his goal. The reason that was his goal was that that was the threshold for provincial funding. My loser status is tied to the fact that if he gets funding, I get funding. So I don't get oh, funding. Oh, okay. Um, How much money did so, you lose? That's fine. 
a couple thousand dollars. Um, but like, what, that's not why I, that's, don't, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it sucks more for him. Like he lost 4,000 that oh, he had had. He's been in the program for the last, you know, several years. So it's, it sort of sucks for him. Like he's just out of school. He's kind of, he's got a teaching contract now, but it's, you know, like he's trying to make as an athlete. I have multiple full-time jobs, so I'm not really concerned about it. But in our conversation about his, you know, in debrief about the race, he was frustrated because he was like, I was looking at my watch and I thought I had it. And then at the end, my watch said 4.7 K. And I was like, Oh man, why are you looking at your watch that way? And so first of all, his last K or K 41 to 42, he ran it in 250 Kipchoge pace at the end of his marathon. And he's done it before. He has a good kick. He did. He ran a two fifty at the end of, uh, or maybe a two forty nine at the end of a ten thousand on the track as well. Wow. Um, so he's got wheels. He was highly motivated to get his time. And also, there was another guy from Quebec, Patrice, who like they're pretty close and they they tend to race each other a lot. And I know Francois really wanted to beat him, and he he had been Patrice had been like a minute and a half ahead at like thirty k, and Francois closed on him and finished four seconds behind him. So he was charging hard. But he was saying, he was like looking at his watch and he's like, oh yeah, the average time was telling me this and I kept seeing the watch and it was like this. And I was like, yeah. But meanwhile, Hoffbauer doesn't use a watch, apparently, which he learned from Eric Gillis, who finished 10th at the Olympics. And in the XC's interview with Lindsay Tessier, she explained how most of the time she doesn't race with a watch either, except for the Doha situation, which was an exception. And I think there's something to that. Because not only is the instant pace on your watch usually wrong, but it, so it's feeding you wrong information. But like, I've never heard of anyone who ran without a watch finish the race and go, "Oh man, I was too slow." Like it's always, "Oh yeah, I kind of ignored my watch, and then like I went way faster than I thought, and I felt good, and I just kept going, and it was great." But people see their watch, and then they're like, "Too fast," or you rationalize because you're running a marathon and it's hard and your watch tells you you're okay. So you don't push faster, right? You don't try to go a little faster because your watch says you're fine. So you're not listening to your body anymore. You're listening to your watch. And I think it's limiting. That's my take. I I was really happy to hear Trevor talk about his watchlessness. Yeah, I agree with that. I was the one thing I would maybe gently push back on, and I'm not a huge watch guy myself. Uh, but the one thing I would gently push back on is that well, the first 20k feels generally pretty, should feel pretty comfortable, and you can really trick yourself into thinking things that are not going to pan out for you. So I don't know. Sure, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that you sucks. Can use, it sucks that you lost a few you, thousand. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, dude. but I mean, you can you can use it as like touchstones or like have like a Timex watch and just check your pace at a K or at 5K and then go from there. Don't look at it constantly, which I think some people do. And that, that constant feedback is not really good for you, I don't think. My final loser, person who lost. It's kind of a risky one. I apologize in advance. Uh, Rachel Cliff. The reason why I say that, I know you're going to push back on me in this one. And Rachel, yeah, I don't agree. I know, I know, Rachel, (laughs) Rachel, you didn't, you're not a loser. You're a wonderful human being. You're one of the greatest runners in Canadian history. You've proven it. And this could be turned around in a dime. And she's 
no doubt got plans for a race, some secret Japanese women's marathon uh, where she's going to totally <laughs> nail a 224 or 222 or whatever the hell she's going to run next, which I think is sky's the limit for her. But for right now, for that weekend, her absence was noted. It was felt. It was a race she could have won, although, I don't know, Dana Pitoreski looked pretty damn good uh, running that race. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know what Rachel Cliff does in that moment when Dana goes out that hard uh, in the first half of that race. Um, and I would have loved to have seen it. And I think that's my point. This was an opportunity. It's a slot. You only have so many slots to prove your dominance, to prove your position, your place, to guarantee your spot in the Olympics. And that's the end goal for these athletes, presumably. And this was a slot and this was an opportunity missed for her. And that's the reason why I'm saying this. Uh, that said, of course, she could undo all of that by running a race in December or February or March or whenever it is she decides to run a race. And also, you know what? Okay. Maybe the Olympics isn't, I don't know. I don't know what goes on with her and her coach, Richard Lee. They do things a little differently than everybody else does, right? Their thinking is a little different than everybody else's is. And maybe, and this is probably not the case, but maybe the, the, the Olympics are a nice idea and something that they want to do and will be part of the plan but maybe the greater plan is let's see how fast we can run a marathon and you do not run your fastest marathon in the Olympics. Okay. But did you not see the video, the, the, the video she oh, did with the, her yeah, sponsor the on thing, the like on it's all, thing. it's all about making the Olympics. No. Yes. So this is my yes. thinking on yes. what Rachel Cliff and, and Richard Lee are thinking. The Olympics is the goal. So if you're going to run a marathon in August of 2020, what's the best thing? So before they changed the venue, it was going to be hot. So she went to Doha, but not in the marathon because that's, that's risky because you can get sick, you get hurt, you know, and you, or you you just, even if something goes wrong, you have this DNF on your, you know, it's just, so she kind of, you know, hedged her bet a bit, went, ran a track 5k that was like okay but you know she's got the excuse if you want of being a marathoner i don't think anyone expected her to to break 15 minutes i think but she got to you know do the big trip be in the big heat model that just like she's gone to japan twice to model racing there and let's be honest though like from vancouver to japan is not that different from ontario to europe really right right it's not that much farther i don't I don't know, I could be wrong in that, but it's still, it's easier for Vancouver than it is for some of them over here. So to me, all the moves that she's been making point to getting ready for Tokyo. Now, I do agree that she could have just punched her ticket, but there's no sure things. And Levin's, that's kind of where I thought Levin's was there for, just to punch his ticket. Um, But that didn't happen. If Rachel Cliff does nothing, between now and June 4th, she'll get selected unless someone runs faster than 226, which again, as I kind of talked about, like you bet against the field, like, you know, is someone going to do that? Mm, I don't think so. Like who, again, like there are surprises. Yeah. But I don't think we should let that, those recent good stories cloud our judgment when it comes to the reality of the marathon. And maybe Melinda Elmore can drop a fast marathon, but, 
as of right now, Melinda Elmore has a wonky hamstring. So that's also going to be a problem for her. And hopefully she clears that up and runs something fast to make it interesting because we like that. But I think that Rachel Cliff is fine. I don't know whether she runs a spring marathon or not. I don't know. I don't know if she needs to. I think she can bide her time. Really? Well, okay. And prepare. Yeah. I mean, no, I I don't disagree with you. And I think that she's the class of the field. I think that until someone takes the the crown off of her head and runs faster than she's run, she's the best runner in uh, in the women's field in Canada and deserves the right to go to the Olympics. And she did it within the window and that sort of thing. So yeah, I I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, I just feel like you're not controlling your own fate. You're leaving it in the hands of other sure people. Sure, but she ran through 26. See, it's funny because this is what, this is the, she's living the dream. Like, this is what people want. They want to know as early as possible so that they can prepare. And it's hard to do that because it's hard to be so good that, you know, there are, there are few Canadians in all of the different track and field events that are, are so good that, that they know they're going to the Olympics. Right, like the kind of like the yeah. metal threats, basically, are the ones that we know. Yeah, like Mo Ahmed is uh, Mo. Yeah, even even Justin Stafford, is, like they're all just know, like preparing for it, basically at this stage. Yeah. yeah, so that's the thing, and she's put herself in that category. Totally, based on agree with that. her right. relative right. position to the rest of the Canadian women's marathoners. So good for her. You're Do right. It. You're like, right, John. You're you know, right. I, and as a <laughs> as as a coach too, like. I, well, you try to coach everybody individually and, and people have different tendencies, but for the marathon, I'm a, kind of a big fan of like not racing a lot and just putting the head down and doing a lot of work. And this gives her the opportunity to do a lot of work and not have to race, and which she, I think is a luxury that and, she has bought herself by running 226. And she is clearly very good at running the marathon she's good at executing on the marathon she's done it a couple of times at an extremely high level clearly and it feels like she's not even run at the total apex of her ability level and her execution level in terms of strategy and like you know her last race the splits in the last 10k 5k were a bit wonky so you imagine that like this is somebody who could run low two twenties maybe, um, which yeah. is very cool. So, so here's it. Just let me see if I can do the math on this quick while I kind of explain my my premise. So if if Lindsay Tessier, as you alluded to, uh, ran a hundred and seven percent of her PB in Doha, what would Rachel Cliff have done? Would Rachel Cliff have medaled? Like if I just did the quick math, it's like a one thirty, a two thirty six. So I don't know. I think the winning time was two thirty two. Uh, what and what did Tessier run? Like two forty forty something something two. I, yeah, sorry, I don't remember. Yeah, right. low two forties. Right. So I mean, it's going to be different in Tokyo. It's not going to be the 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 carnage that it was. But but championship marathons tend to have carnage anyway because it's not it's not paced. Like people are going for broke, like in the sense that they're not going for time, but it's kind of like they're going for place. And if they're not getting it, then it's like, okay, bye. Um, Cause there's not like that. The 
prize structure is usually different from like a bigger race. Like, so I don't know. I, I think, you know, like, uh, Eric Gillis was 10th. Lindsay Teste was 9th. What could Rachel Cliff do? We will find out in yeah. less than a year's time, probably. <laughs> yeah. All right, John. That was our winners and losers for the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. I, really, it was a a damn good race. It was a good weekend. It was a good re- weekend for ca- running in Canada. It was a good weekend to sort of fill out, I think, what is becoming one of the, probably the craziest season ever in distance running history, That I mean, that I can think of. So we'll do this again. We'll do it for New York and we'll keep it on going. Thank you very much for joining us, John. And uh, we'll talk soon. 